Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Giles Brandreth is a writer, broadcaster and former MP. He's appeared on Celebrity Gogglebox, QI and Have I Got News For You. He's written over nine books, including the Oscar Wilde murder mystery and a biography of Prince Philip. Now he presents a weekly podcast with Susie Dent about words. Something rhymes with purple. Today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. So the the idea is that it's about letter writing. Now, as I've already seen in your house from your Zoom background, and you're in a room where you have written all of these books, although, albeit many editions, for the listener, there is hundreds of books in this room written by Giles. So I'm assuming you are a prolific letter writer. Yes, I am. And for me, one of the sadnesses of my life is that writing emails doesn't seem the same thing at all. It's not the same. I've been really recording my life ever since I was a little boy. I was sent away to boarding school. I thought at the time it was because my parents didn't like me. It turns out that it was because I was talking too much. I only heard this from my sister the other day. Apparently, I talked so much as a little boy that the family got together and they had a kind of family conference. My three older sisters, my parents, they said, look, he doesn't stop talking. He does not stop talking. And um, we got to do something about it. And I think they just had enough of me at home. And I came across, because I wrote during lockdown, a kind of childhood memoir. And I was digging into all sorts of boxes. And I came across my school reports from the 1950s when I was a little boy going to the French Lycée in London. Mm-hmm. And so I was speaking French. And they described me as Le Bavard, the talker. And clearly, I just didn't stop talking. And I think everyone wanted a break. (laughs) And so I was sent away to boarding school. And that's when I began doing two things. I began learning to write letters. Because every Sunday morning at the boarding school, we we would go into the, the man called Major Doubt, who taught us Latin. He didn't teach us Latin very well. <laughs> For years, I thought in loco parentis meant my dad's an engine driver. Anyway, <laughs> we, we sat in this man's classroom at the desks and we had little inkwells and we had an hour called letter writing. And you had to fill the whole hour with letter writing. You couldn't just write a quick letter and then stop. You had to fill the whole hour with letter writing. So sometimes you wrote very long letters to your parents, but sometimes you ran out of things to say. You then had to write to your grandparents or to your aunties. So you had an hour of letter writing every week and also my parents gave me i think it was 1959 so i mean about 10 years old they gave me uh, an edition of samuel pepys's diary and that gave me the idea of keeping a diary and so from that day to this i have kept a diary so when i'm not talking i'm writing so and that's essentially what i'm doing at 10 years old you were given a copy of samuel pepys's diary right that gift you'd give to a 10-year-old these days? <laughs> well, maybe you should. I don't know. It was an expurgated edition. The, the rude bits were cut out. I didn't realise I was much older. 
that I'm afraid he, he wasn't what we would call a good man. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of those about. That's how I got into letter writing. And uh, I, I, I've written letters all my life. And I, I think it's, and, and when I was an MP, funnily enough, that's when the practice, that was the last time I wrote notes on a regular basis. I don't know if they still do that. But in my day as an MP, you sent a note because there was that internal post system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you would send notes to people. And so if somebody had given a good speech or you, you felt somebody was down or you just wanted to say something, um, it was before we had texting. You'd go into the library, you'd get, pick up a piece, and you just write them a short note and put it that in the internal system. That still happens. Yeah. That still happens. And it's, I, yes. it's rarer, I think, probably. But um, Jim Shannon from the DUP, he must spend his entire day just writing notes. I mean, that is literally, he sends, and you think that you're special because Jim Shannon has sent you a nice little note. And then you speak to anyone else and they're like, I've got 700 notes from Jim Shannon from the DUP. Um, yeah, but, that, but, that does definitely still happen. But it's a, it's, it's a nice way. It's, it's a mm -hmm. different way of communicating. Um, and I hope, I mean, I've kept every letter almost that anybody has ever sent me in my entire life. Uh, I mean, I've got obviously letters from, Famous, great people. I've got who are the great people you've got letters from? Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I wrote to great people to get letters back from them. <laughs> uh, in fact, I'll go and find you one in a minute because I wrote a letter when I was oh, I wrote letters ask, asking great people for advice, and the best letter I got back, I think, was from Field Marshal Lord Montgomery. When I was a little boy in the 1950s, the war was only 10 years, the Second World War was only 10 years before. So these wartime generals were, were superheroes in our society. The sort of people who now have statues. You know, you walk along uh, Whitehall mm -hmm. and opposite Downing Street, outside the Ministry of Defence, are the statues of, mm -hmm. of, of people, great leaders during the Second World War, whose names are now forgotten. But they, those statues went up and were paid for by public subscription because people were so grateful to them for what they'd achieved during the war and uh, Montgomery was famous to me because my father was a soldier in the war and he was in North Africa Montgomery of Alamein etc so I wrote to him and he wrote me back this letter so I wrote to famous people and then of course I wrote to girlfriends and when I came to write this um, memoir a couple of years ago I got in touch with a couple of girlfriends I mean when I say I wrote I wrote every day and I wrote sometimes more than once a day and pages. And I got in touch with these girls and it would run now, of course, no longer girls. And I said, I'm, I'm doing this book and I wondered if you kept any of the... <laughs> they fell about laughing. <laughs> we threw them away at the time. Never. <laughs> I mean, it was so hurtful. And I've treasured these things. And I've got boxes that are done up with little ribbons and things. And all of my stuff just burnt. But there was one interesting story, one correspondence story. I was in a school play. I, I went to another boarding school. I then went to a second boarding school uh, called uh, Beedales, which was a school in Hampshire, a co-educational boarding school. And I was in the school play, almost my first year, it was T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. And I played one of the monks. And anyway, a couple of days after the end of the run, I, I got a letter from a girl. Um, uh, who was no longer at the school, had been at the school, and her sister was still at the school. And she sent me this letter saying, I saw you in the school play, and I think you're beautiful. And she must have only been about 18, you see, and I was 14 or 15. Oh, like this is really extraordinary, anyway. So I wrote back saying, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, are, are you beautiful? Anyway, she replied, sending me a photograph of herself, and boy, was she beautiful. I mean, she was, I mean, super beautiful. And so we began a correspondence. And this correspondence lasted about a year, two years. And it became increasingly intimate. Bear in mind, she was 18 or 19. I was 14 or 15. This latter day Tinder. I'm loving it. Well, uh, wait till you see how it finishes. And she began doing drawings of herself. <laughs> uh, when, when, the, when the letters began, she just, she'd been, she came to the school to see the play. Then she went back to Beirut. Ooh. Where she was, yeah, exactly. But this was before Beirut was a war zone. Beirut was then an exotic Middle Eastern city. So she was living this life as a, an artist in Beirut oh and with this long hair. And anyway, she sent me these lines, as well as the photograph, which was fabulous. She sent me these line drawings of herself, page after page of them, drawings of her sitting up in bed. Anyway, uh, uh, thinking of me. Uh, and, and she had a lovely 
different colored inks she had some letters were written in green ink some in and when they got a little bit hot she would change from green to red ink i was wrote back in blue ink i felt that was yeah. um, <laughs> uh, anyway after about two years i was sitting in my dormitory on my bed listening to music or reading a book probably reading a book and somebody came into the dormitory and said um uh, chrissy your friend chrissy is in the quad quadrangle as it were he said chrissy your friend chrissy apparently she's in the quadrangle and i thought god it's her i'd never met her we'd corresponded for two years i'd never met her i thought i can't go i can't face it i can't I, I look at me i look at her i look and i thought oh god what am i going to do anyway the message came up again She's in the quadrangle. She's waiting to see you. She's going to go if you don't come. So I thought, oh, I better go down. So I steeled my courage um, and ran down into the quadrangle and went, rushed out into the quadrangle and said, hello, it's me, Giles. And she looked at me and she said, you're not Giles. I said, well, you're Chrissy. You look just like your photograph. You're not the right boy. <laughs> She had been writing to the wrong boy for two you years. You had catfished her unknowingly. Totally unknowingly. <laughs> and, and the boy, and he, he may still be alive, he was called Mark Kidell. He became a journalist, ended up in Washington, D.C. Um, Mark was not nearly as good looking as I was, <laughs> I felt. He was a bit older than me, and I could see there was a similarity. And what had happened was... There were four of us monks, and her sister had identified me as the monk because I was in the same year as her sister instead of Mark. But it was Mark she fancied. So all these letters, all this love, this outpouring, and as it were, this oh, flirtatious edges of erotica were being sent under false pretenses to me. So I then thought, well, my adolescence has been ruined. The great love of my teenage years turns out to be a chimera. Oh, my God, that is unbelievable. Did she get yeah. together with Mark? Did you tell Mark of this? What is sad is that she never got in touch again. She, he left the school by then because he was, he was near her age. And I, I then I felt embarrassed about the sister. The whole thing became... An embarrassment that none of us. In fact, I don't think I've actually ever talked about it until oh my today. God, that is a great story. Um, it's almost like Serrano yeah. de Bergerac as well. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, yeah. So, Mark. So there we are. I think um, that her and Mark, or her and you, could have been the loves of your lives. I mean. Well, what I'm very wary of, I've now reached the age, and you will eventually, I hope, reach this age, where most of I'm, I'm still working, but many of my friends and contemporaries from school have given up work. And they seem to have time on their hands. And people are getting in touch, who I've not heard for from, from 50 or 60 years. How are you? I don't want to know. If I'd been interested in you, I'd have been in touch. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you want to know what's been happening to me, I've published an excellent childhood memoir, <laughs> Odd Boy Out, available at all good bookshops, coming out in paperback soon. Read my story. I don't know. I don't wish to have a catch-up lunch, drink, tea, walk by the Thames. No, thank you very much. Hi, brilliant. They're all getting in touch. So maybe Mark uh, and Chrissy could get in touch. Yeah, but that's the point. Maybe they could get together. Maybe now is the time. Anyway, so uh, letters have been important to me. And when I, and, and, and at school, because all this happened before, I love love letters. I, I love friendlessness letters. I, I love letters. And I remember talking to some students a year or two ago, which just happened, happened to be, I'm Chancellor of the University of Chester, which is a wonderful thing because I often feel a bit depressed reading the newspapers. <laughs> and then I turn up at the university and I meet the undergraduates, the students, and suddenly I feel good again because they're full of hope, intelligence, ambition. Uh, you know, they're just getting on with life and they don't seem to be reading the newspapers. Anyway, um, uh, but I was with a group on Valentine's Day and I said, oh, have you all had Valentine's cards? None of them had. I said, have you had Valentine's letters? And they said, what's a Valentine's letter? They didn't seem to be aware of it. So I said, well, when you, you know, when you fancy someone, what happens? They said, well, maybe we send a text. I said, a text? Yeah. Or an emoji? I said, an emoji? An emoji? Yeah. And, and if you really fancy teach. someone, what is it? Emoji with a tongue hanging out. I said, oh, please. Spend. Aubergine, aubergine, aubergine. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> please, don't. I'm not going to talk about Peter Andre here. <laughs> I see you're very taken with the... Uh... 
the Vardy Rooney trial. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> you've, you've you been know, following I, it closely. I have to keep in touch. I apparently have, <laughs> <laughs> have to follow it very closely to get all the detail. The, no, yeah. it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Um, it seems I, like. And also, I needed to change from Johnny Depp and Amber. That yeah, was, oh that, God. Oh. I mean, it's all just ritual humiliation of rich people, isn't it? Like unnecessarily. It's, dragging each other through court systems. But it's, anyway, uh... the, the point is, I tried to say to these young people, um, actually, it's fun to write a love letter. It's fun to write a love poem. Mm. And uh, certainly when I was young, that's the way it was done because there was no alternative. Actually, there was an alternative. When I, I left school and I went to university and the first, my, my, at university, I fell in love pretty quickly. Um, well, in fact, I fell in love instantly. Uh, and I put on a pantomime. I wanted to, to put on a show, and for the Student Dramatic Society, the Oxford University Dramatic Society, I put on a pantomime, Cinderella. And I advertised for people to come and play the part of Cinderella. And so I put up notices everywhere, all over the colleges, saying, if you are beautiful and feel you have the qualities to be a fairy tale princess, I'd like to meet you. <laughs> I'm conducting auditions in New College Cloisters. didn't sound as creepy as it does now. I was going to say, it sounds quite creepy now. <laughs> anyway, but there was going to be somebody there, the choreographer, somebody playing the piano, come to the auditions, just a normal audition. Anyway, it was a kind of, people chose themselves. They saw the advertisement. They thought they were beautiful. They could be a fairy tale princess. I was casting Cinderella. And all these brilliant uh, girls turned up, aged between, I suppose, 18 and 22. And to one of them, I said during the auditions, um, would you would you mind staying behind? Because uh, I want to say something to you at the end of the audition. I never met her before, and apparently she had a history tutorial she didn't want to go to particularly, so she said she would stay. So she waited. And I came out of the auditions, and I said to this girl, hello, I, 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 this may seem a bit forward, but I'd like to say to you, I, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm... Does this happen in all your podcasts, Jess? I don't yeah, know. I yeah. think I've told people this tell to me else either. People anyway, tell me all sorts. They, they do. Anyway, so uh, I, I, I said this. So she just laughed at me contemptuously um, and said, um, well, am I getting the part of Cinderella? I said, well, I'm, I'm still deciding about that. <laughs> uh, but I offered her a meal um, and um, we went for a Chinese meal. This dates the story because the meal cost one shilling and sixpence. <laughs> special fried rice and banana fritters. I remember it vividly. Um, that was each, one six each. So it'd be three shillings in all. Um, I mean, it's gone up now, three yeah. shillings. I yeah. mean, you were yeah. splashing. Can you imagine? Away. Three shillings. For your younger listeners, that is 15p in modern money. Anyway, the point of the story is this. I fell in love on the 6th of June, 1968, with this person. And... Um, when we finish doing our podcast just now, <laughs> I shall be going to have a cup of tea with her because. Oh uh, my gosh! Been... And you told her that you loved her on that moment. Yeah. Um, did you give her the part? Uh, did I? No. Now this is <laughs> God. She she said, "You're all talk, aren't you? You're ruthless. You're ruthless." And that's why she was mistrustful of me. I didn't give her the part. I gave the part to a very nice person called Caroline, uh, who was blonde, and Michelle was not blonde and I got into my head I wanted a blonde Cinderella of course she could have worn a wig couldn't she it was interesting I tell you who I did cast as the fairy queen somebody called Eliza Manningham Buller do you know what I mean by her she's now Baroness Manningham Buller in the House of Lords the head forgive me the head of MI5 she became the head of MI5 she played my fairy queen yeah she's now Lady of the Garter so (laughs) the, the thing to do is to start with me and you go places you go places. You end up running so. MI5, Lady of the Garter. I mean, I said this to, I've recently been doing something called Celebrity Gogglebox. And, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, with Maureen Lippman. Yeah, I did it's it with brilliant. Maureen Lippman. They made her a dame. I then did it with um, Sheila Hancock. They made her a dame. I think the Queen is watching and saying, <laughs> these women have suffered enough sitting on a sofa <laughs> with this bloke. Yeah. We'll make, this, we'll make yeah. them a dame. Yeah, Why aren't exactly. you being knighted? Yeah, exactly. What? Is that the is that the, that's it's the equivalent? It's the equivalent. It? Yeah, it's yeah. the equivalent of being knighted. You will be a dame one day. I, I, I definitely am expected you, you, to be you, a dame. You don't think you will be, but you lo- you love it. You you lot. Uh, it's Sakia Starmer, and why not? Yeah. Uh, it's Dame Margaret Beckett, and yeah. why not? 
Um, I think, though, that if you're knighted as a knight of the realm, that when we're at war, you should be on the front line. Oh, that's a bit, oh yeah. So, like, Elton John, <laughs> Paul McCartney. But we want to win the war, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying they could maybe broker a peace with some of their that's other talents. Idea. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, well, if you're a knight of the realm, I think that you have to act like a knight. I, and... I like all those things, because um, I'm a traditionalist, but also, as the Queen says, it's nice to get a pat on the back. So when you are offered, Jess... Oh, I'm going to take my dame, my dameness. Good. I'll take dame. Take dame. Good. I won't take anything less. Dame or baronet, back dame, baroness. I'll I'll take either Good. of those. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll definitely take either of those. So anyway, we've got to get onto your letters. So I've yes. asked you to think of three people yes. or um, groups of people that you want to write a letter to, just to say how much you appreciate them. And the first one is just the person who means the world to you. So who would that be? Well, that would undoubtedly be my wife. And oh. the, the... I mean, all those years. Uh, yes, and for two reasons. One is um, I realise that it's very easy if you live with someone and, and as I told you, we met on the 6th of June 1968, so it's, we've been, as it were, together a long time. It's quite easy to accidentally take somebody for granted if you live with them all that time because they're, they're there. And so you don't stop. And if you live with them, you don't write them letters. Um, mm. And uh, so when you when you you email me to say you've got to think of someone you want to write a letter to, I thought actually, um, because I, I I mean Valentine's Day, birthday, etc. Um, uh, but you know I would write a card or, or a letter. But on the whole, if you live with somebody, you don't write them letters. Other than like get milk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I do remember I do remember a letter that a note my wife left for me when I was in the whips office because I was an MP virtually before you were born in the 1990s. <laughs> and uh, I was in John Major's government. And at the end of it, we had no majority at all. I mean, literally no majority. Um, we only got legislation through, as it were, on the speaker's vote. I mean, it was mm -hmm. that close. Uh, usually we had two or three, but at the, right at the end, we had no majority at all. And I remember one night when um, they were on the news, we'd lost a vote. And I was, count I was the whip counting the votes that night. And my wife, knowing how bad I am at maths, was sure it was me. And she left, because when I was in the whip's office, I was there from seven in the morning till midnight. And we used to, in those days, also have all night sittings anyway. But oh, she knew I wasn't yeah. gonna get in till about one in the morning. And she left a little note on the kitchen table with a whole bottle of wine saying, you will need this. Um, it wasn't <laughs> your fault. The government was going to fall anyway. Don't worry. Bless Imagine, her. like the first rule of politics is learn to count. Um, because, you, you know, don't go into a room unless you know you're going to win the vote in that room. Yeah. So learn to count. So, yeah, the idea that the whole government could fall because you'd not nodded enough people through properly yeah. would be hilarious. Yeah, well, you may I've only ever seen it once happen since I was there, and it was during the Brexit votes where it went down to the speakers. Yeah vote the speaker uh, and but the speaker has to by yeah. tradition vote with the public yes. vote with the government don't yeah. they so um well, it i don't think john burke might not it, at it, one oh, point oh. but it happened more than once in in my time but the point is we don't write to each other so since you were giving me the opportunity to write to somebody i thought she would be the person to write to and particularly because you do take people for granted i, I became aware of that i did um, some years ago the next best thing to this was doing Desert Island Discs on Radio oh 4. Oh, God, what a ledge. Uh, and uh, got to the end of it, and the person who was interviewing me um, said, um, that was marvellous, thank you very much, um, but traditionally people mention their wives. I said, sorry? It's or, or husbands, you know, their partner. And, and you've talked, you know, for 45 minutes. Don't know, you haven't actually mentioned your wife. Do you, would you like to? I said, oh, goodness, thank God. I said, you've saved me. I mean, my God, oh, this would be discussed at the Relate meeting. Um, thank you very much indeed. And so she allowed me to edit in a little bit. So I didn't want to make that mistake again. So I thought I'll start. <laughs> I'll start with where I want to start. And in the early days, I wrote a great deal to my wife. And the point of the story I began telling about no texting is there were telegrams. And at Oxford uh, University, where, where did you go to university? I went to Leeds University and then Birmingham to do my postgraduate. Well, uh, did you have, there was a system at Oxford University, because it's colleges, of mm -hmm. a kind of post within within the college that you could no, deliver we notes. we didn't have that. We didn't have so that. So you, you could send notes. So I sent several notes a day, but also I sent telegrams. Um, and these were telegrams. You know, this is the idea of a telegram. 
this was that somebody on a bicycle came and you know, delivered a telegram. You phoned it in. It was delivered to your door. Um, in America, you know, they used to have singing telegrams. This is true. In America, yeah, they had singing telegrams. telegrams. Yeah. I, I know this because I was when, during my gap year, I was in California. And there was a very drunken lady whose birthday it was. And the boy arrived with the, with the telegram. She said, go sing me the telegram. Sing me the telegram. And the boy said, I don't want to sing the telegram. And she said, you will sing that telegram. It's my birthday, Sonny. You sing the telegram. And he opened the telegram and he sang, tra-la-la-la-la-la, your sister Rose is dead. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so I would send telegrams uh, protesting my love. And, and of course, I didn't realize that this can be a bit off-putting to be oppressing somebody with letters three or four times a day. Telegram is embarrassing if you're a, a student. Um, at yeah, but nowadays people would just text that many times a day. Yes, I suppose but, they would, Yes, they? somebody turning up at your door with multiple messages. Yeah. I think I might, that might be a bit of a red flag. Yeah. So anyway, quite sensibly, she played hard to get. But as we know in life, persistence pays. Um, it does. And the truth is, uh, my uh, wife is the, the, by far the best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, the most important four words in the English language are indeed, listen to your wife. Um, and sometimes it's important to do so. When I became an MP, for example, um, I'd been working previously doing the sort of thing I do now, a mixture mm -hmm. of television and um, after dinner speaking, you know, corporate work and writing and uh, and I was earning reasonable good money and when I became an MP that money dropped considerably because MPs in the 1990s were not paid like they are today no. uh, and I hadn't really thought about that because money has never been a motivating force for me it's always nice to have enough but mm -hmm. once you've got enough you've got enough in my my view and I do know what money worries can be like because my parents had them middle class money worries but they were nonetheless real money worries and um, uh, my wife could see that we were heading for the rocks financially because I'd been used to living at a certain mm -hmm. level and I was now living, and I was a full-time MP, didn't want to do anything else at all, or I couldn't find the time to do anything else at all. Um, so she turned our finances around and uh, took away the checkbook, began to organize everything. And the point of the story is basically she has saved my bacon time and again, and she's brought up our children brilliantly. And when in doubt, listen to your wife that's really all you need to know yeah life. i i need to listen to my husband much more he's definitely the more sensible oh, is he? although he definitely takes me for granted i once said to him you don't have any photos of it. there's no photos of us in the house and he's like i know what you look like you're here oh, i was okay. like oh well that's that's true that's nice that's romantic oh. um do you do how did she find being the wife of an mp I imagine uh, it was quite hard it's especially the reason, in the 90s it's probably the reason i'm no longer an mp yeah. I mean, the real reason I'm no longer an MP is that I was, the people spoke. <laughs> uh, and I was Those in the Those people, they'll have a habit of that. They are, you know, <laughs> honestly, bastards. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes say, you know, uh, by the time I lost my seat, I knew I had contempt for my constituents, but it came as a shock to the system to find the feeling was entirely mutual. Um, <laughs> in fact, I, I loved being an MP. Uh, I found it fascinating. Um, I, I love being in government too. Yeah, government. that's better isn't it? Government is the thing. It's so frustrating doing what you're doing. Yeah, um, it, is. it really is. And I knew, I, I, I was kicked out, as it were, by literally the Blair Babes, all of that, mm. that, that generation, 97, swept out. And I knew we wouldn't, my lot wouldn't be back for a decade at least. And I thought, I've got to do something. I've got to earn a living. And also, my wife had not, she'd done it brilliantly. She was mm. absolutely brilliant. She was the one they said, oh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure about him, but she's nice. So he must be <laughs> Take yeah. care to all the meetings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I pushed her in first. I mean, at the selection <laughs> meeting, I said, you go and do 10 minutes in the room and I'll then come in later. <laughs> I mean, she was fabulous. Uh, she was so, I mean, my God, she was so good. Um, I mean, she was just fantastic. I mean, you couldn't be better. Um, oh, the one rule she did say, she said this and she was very good. She wouldn't do bites. Um at functions she wouldn't make the little you know sausage rolls and things oh, she yeah. set that down as a rule she'd go to anything she'd do anything but she wouldn't get um uh, she wouldn't make the bites but she was everywhere every weekend she was fantastic um but it took its toll uh, she was organizing our finances she was sorting out the children she would it was a real problem where's your real home 
people would mm. say, because our constituency was up in, in the northwest in Chester, mm -hmm. beautiful city. I know it well. I'm now the chancellor of the University mm. of Chester. My father's family came from Hoylick and Wirral. So part of the world we genuinely knew and loved. But if you're an MP, it's in Westminster. Mm. You're not actually a councillor. You're actually a member of parliament, which happens mm. to be in Westminster. So you need to be in Westminster. Oh, where's your real home? Uh, oh, God, it got her down. And she travelled with me, so on a Thursday or a Friday she'd come back. So we were commuting together, and I think... She never it's so different now. I mean, my husband, my family live in Birmingham. I mean, also train travel, it's an hour and yeah. 15 minutes from yeah. Birmingham to London, so it's it's eminently doable. But, um, you know, my, my husband, like, he has nothing to do with Westminster, really. And there's a gender split probably in that some, somewhere along the line. And also the difference between being a Labour MP and a Conservative MP. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's you know, there's, there's no question that people travel with their partners now, really. But it definitely used to be the norm. Mm. And it used to be very sort of like you'd go on a Friday, and you could, whereas I, I stay in Westminster Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I leave. Oh. I, I'm in Birmingham more of the time God. than... Oh, uh, well, you see, I was a whip, so also, so I lived oh, yeah. at Westminster. I mean, Monday to Thursday, I was totally at Westminster. And we had much less support, not that I complained at all. I, I had a secretary. That yeah, but we, I have lots of staff. Yeah, I, I had one secretary, and I think I had, then I got one when the money was increased, I got a, a, another secretary. But but that was it. Of course, we didn't have emails. So I was writing endless letters. And my wife kept saying, oh, God, you think they love you more because you're signing the letter, adding that little postscript to your own hair? They don't. They will get rid of you. Don't you think? They just want you either support the planning application or don't support the planning application. It'll make no difference, Charles. Um, your wife was right. She was right. <laughs> and she she'd come and, she'd come and sit sometimes at the surgery with me. And I was so tired, I used to take a fork, a fork in with me to surgery meetings. And I would sit there and I'd have the fork under the table, pressing it into my thigh to keep me awake. <laughs> I was so exhausted. And there would be the person sitting opposite me telling me about their housing benefit or you know, the child maintenance um, or whatever it was. And I would be trying to keep myself awake by pushing this fork to, so that I could absorb what they were saying. Oh my uh, God. That's dreadful. It's definitely better now. I mean, I've got like five members of staff, many of whom they deal with all the, the, the casework and, and and things like that. Yeah. You see, but I felt it was somehow important to deal with the casework because I thought this is what it's all about. Because if you don't, that's I mean, you're, the you're, joy of our system right. is that, you know, even your your most, you know, your, the most despised Tory you can imagine. Sits in a surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And they do meet real people, and that's the great thing. It's the about it's gold class in our country. Yeah, uh, it, it is. Does, I think the Republic of Ireland uh, has a not dissimilar system, but I've never seen a uh, such direct democracy um, where people are so close to their representatives anywhere else in the world. And people in my constituency obviously come from all over the world. Um, and sometimes when like you knock on their door, they cannot believe that you as their elected representative are not just driving past in a blacked out SUV yeah. or, you know, asking for bundles of cash in envelopes. And, and like, you know, it's we are the fact that Theresa May would like, you know, put on a tabard and be like one of the the people at the fun run yeah. in, you know, that, that's a, that's a good thing. That's not yeah. something that's why I'm a bit funny about proportional representation because I don't want to be a Labour MP. I want to be the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you speak with real... And indeed, the, the private members' bills that I did were always based on constituency course, yeah. matters. And there was one that I introduced that actually did change things. The 1994 Marriage Act began as a private members' bill. And that's what enables you to get married now in a place other than a register office. Up until then, you could only get married if you wanted a civil wedding in a register office. Really? But somebody in my constituency came to me and said, I've got this old castle and I want to make it profitable. Uh, why can't I have weddings? You can get married in a church. Why can't I get married in a castle? So I turned this into a private member's bill. And as a result of a constituent getting in touch. Yeah, I mean, that's how our democracy works. And people, I don't think people know that enough. I don't think people realise that everything that changes in the House of Commons is usually because somebody's walked into a surgery and yeah. said, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm bothered about that. And, and that's magical in this time with sort of fracturing and division. That's magical, and we don't talk about it anywhere near enough. That needs to be pushed. But it is time-consuming, and it does pull you away from your family. 
um, and you can become obsessed with other people's family lives and things and start to forget about your own. So your wife will have had, you know, some crosses to bear. She did. She's had lots. She had me to bear. She's had me to bear. And we do now. She can't now. send you to boarding school when you talk no. too much. Uh, exactly. Well, it, I, we do a show together. Well, I say we do a show. I do a show, a stage show, which I'm touring at the moment called Break a Leg. And uh, we go around the country. And she stands in the wings. She's there at every performance with a stopwatch timing me. So I don't go on too long. It's a two-hour show. And in the wings, I promise this is true, if I'm going on for too long, she stands in the wings with a big sign that she said made that reads, Giles, you think you're the thinking man's Ken Dodd. You're not. <laughs> Get off. My, Which is fantastic. My husband once told me when I was writing a book, he said, you should write a book called You're Nowhere Near As Good As You Think You Are. Take yourself down a peg or two. <laughs> well, well, maybe. Look, when you and I get together, maybe your husband and my wife can get together. Because they obviously both, they need a break. <laughs> they need a break. So how would you sign off a letter to your lovely wife? Is her name Michelle? Her name is Michelle. I would simply say, well, I'll tell you what I'd sign off. I'd simply say thank you. Oh, Those would be the last two words. Yeah. Thank you. That's she it. sounds like she deserves some thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, op I opened my conversation with her, wherever it was, 54 years ago, with I love you. And I'm going to end it now with thank you. Thank you so much. So the second letter I asked you to think about was somebody who's no longer here. So who would that letter be to? My book, Odd Boy Out, does end with a letter because I, I love letters. And, I, and it's a letter to my father. Um, and because uh, that's who I would write to. I would write to my father. And I've, I have written this letter. My father um, was a good man. Uh, he died when, well, he was younger than me when he died. My father was a solicitor, a lawyer. Um, and essentially, my father gave everything to his family. And he was middle class and he was well off because he was a visitor. But every year, he always spent a little bit more than he was earning. Uh, not on extravagant things. He wasn't extravagant. But on the basics and on school fees, he sent us all to boarding school because that's what he felt. That's what my mother wanted to. That was what middle class people did. And... So he had money worries. I, I realize this now, and I don't. I realized it a bit when I was a child, but I realized it when researching my book and digging into all the archives and finding all these family papers. And and I, and then I remembered that when I was a child and living at home, of a of an evening, I would see him in the kitchen when I would go to bed past the kitchen. He'd be sitting at the kitchen table with a cigarette, which he smoked all his life. One of the reasons he died young, uh, but with a cup of tea and a cigarette, and he'd be going through the bills trying to work out which one to pay first, which one he could delay, whether he could write to that person and say, can I pay you that next month? Uh, whether he could get a little extra subvention from the bank. And money worries basically wore him down. And it's why when I was an MP and, and subsequently, um, and my wife who worked for many years for the Citizens Advice Bureau, there's nothing worse than money worries. I mean, they are as bad in their own way as health worries. And, and, and the small money worries are as big as the major money worries. Those gnawing, and essentially my father was worn away by a lifetime of money worries. And he used to have um, some drawings on the wall. I think they were Dickensian characters, balance on the right side and balance on the wrong side. And one was a, a sort of Victorian gentleman in his counting house and the money was on the right. Balance on the right side, happiness. Balance on the wrong side, misery. And my father essentially had a life that could have been happy on the edge of misery, worrying about money for 40 years of his marriage. And I think that because, I mean, the difference between you and I, Giles, I think that if to most people would be, there is a, there is a class difference, even though I am middle class. Uh, it's a different sort of middle class. Um, and the... I think that people, certainly people with status of jobs like solicitors who are sending their children to away to school as well are not often entitled to have money worries either. You, It's very buttoned up. It's very, it's what worries me at the moment about, you know, sort of rising inflation is that it won't hit the people it's always been hit, who've been hit very hard in my constituency. It's going to touch 
every you know you people with your 1930 semi and two cars on the drive these people are going to start having those worries as well um but there is there is less avenue for people like your dad i mean also the time was different for people to talk people endlessly talking about their bloody mm. problems these days don't they i mean they never bloody stop but like that it would have been hard because he the expectation of just keeping everything afloat and being fine and being seen to be fine would Absolutely. have been hard. I totally. Think. And he did belong completely to that stiff upper lip generation. I mean, this never emerged beyond the kitchen. Um, so I, I was very aware of that. And, I, and, and I, I owe everything to his wonderful support of me. I was conscious of it at the time, actually, the money worries, because when I was a student, I began to earn some money myself doing broadcasting and journalism. And I began to help I paid my own bills, but I also began to help pay mm. family bills. I helped try to help pay the phone bill and things at home. So I, I was aware of it then, but it sort of came back to me with a great swoop as I was writing about my childhood and remembering what it was like to live in, in the 1950s and 1960s in England when, well, things were, were very different. Um, not necessarily worse, but mm. things like going to the laundrette and doing the laundry. And, and, and so... It was quite interesting to depict middle-class life. Um, uh, so I, I will get a copy of the book sent to you because you might, you might actually find it quite intriguing. Yeah, do. I think middle-class life is very, very different. I mean, A, I think middle-class life is different in London yeah. than it is in Birmingham. So people assume that I'm really working class because I've got a regional accent. I mean, I grew up, my, my dad's a teacher. My mum worked in the NHS. I grew up in a perfectly comfortable home, um, a nice big house. Uh, well, I mean, big, big-ish. Uh, we were perfectly comfortable, but there is the the, the difference I think between the south uh, and the rest of the country in in a you don't have accents in in the south middle class people don't have well they do have an accent but it's it's sort of deemed as being posh, but um, also the thing about school like it's not it's not a culture amongst middle class people even the wealthiest middle class people in other parts of the country to send their children really to private schools really it's just not a, it's not a cultural thing and most middle class people from um from where i come from they became middle class actually in the 1990s so the 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 sort of boom in public sector um in in basically the blair years really um made quite a lot of people quite middle class uh, who had grown up working class. Oh, when I went to university, there was a girl in my um, who I lived with, and her nan was like on a holiday to like Bali. So her nan was wealthy, and I'd never met a person who had a wealthy nan. I'd only met people who had like <laughs> nans who were dinner ladies, and then they had parents who were professionals, and then we were the next generation. But the idea of people before being wealthy, it, wealth starts from my middle class people like me in like 1989 really and it does so margaret thatcher and tony blair between them made a new middle class there we are and how would you sign it off thank you for everything ever your loving son giles hey mark what is up with your bad self well hey simon what is up with your bad self well as it turns out, lots is up. Like, actually, what? Like a whole new podcast. They thought we were going away, but we're back. Biggerer and betterer and larger and more is more. And it's going to have reviews of... Big films, small films, weird films, new films... And... And television. Kermode and Mayo's Take. Follow now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the last one is someone who doesn't know the effect that they've had on your life. So who would that be? That would be our cat, Nala. <laughs> well, actually, and she is representing all the cats that we have had over the years. I don't think they've realised how they've been, the, the, well, they've been our lives. I love, I mean, when I was a child, we had a cat called Griggs. Um, well, I remember one year we went to, we thought we'd go to have Hogmanay in Glasgow. My parents, we took, we took the, those were the days. I think we went up in the family Volkswagen up the motorway, if there was a motorway, my, I sat on my father's lap. There were no seatbelts. I sat on my father's lap, helping him steer all the way up to Glasgow, on my father's lap. We and used I would to do be, that. Nowadays, yeah. you'd be absolutely pilloried. My dad always used to let us drive onto the ferry. That was yeah. the treat. <laughs> absolutely. And when I wasn't steer, I had to steer completely on my own when he was lighting his cigarettes. So be on the motorway, he'd be lighting his cigarettes, I'd be steering the car. But we took the cat with us to Glasgow, and then it escaped. And so that was our Hogmanay. We spent the whole of Hogmanay trying to find this cat in the streets of Glasgow. And we'd come from London. Anyway, uh, cats are everything. And we've had lots of cats over the years. Oscar, Neville and Rosie were our first cats in our first London flat. Um, we've had Felix. We've had Jack. We've had Viola. Uh, we, we've had so many of them. But uh, when the last one died... We thought, we're not going to get another one. It's too heartbreaking. The dying is too heartbreaking. And even though it's made painless for us because we have a son-in-law who is a vet, (laughs) which you do need. Definitely. I've got that insurance for mine. I'm not paying out for the bloody cats. Yeah, well, uh, what happened? We said we weren't going to have any more pets. And then from next door, from the house next door, came a cat. And it jumped over the wall and came to see my wife. And it it became very friendly and it wouldn't go away and we wouldn't let it into the house well then we did let it into the house but then we turned it out again well then we wouldn't feed it then we did feed it and then we thought this is very bad we're stealing the cat from next door <laughs> and then we thought well oh, i don't know they don't seem to mind they don't seem to have noticed so we're sitting there with the cat on our lap one evening when there's a ring on the doorbell and at the doorbell is our next door neighbor with a piece of paper on it is the picture of the cat and the next door neighbor says you know we've lost our cat i'm going down the street and you know and, and my wife said, oh, um, uh, oh, um, uh, mm, uh, mm. anyway, we say, oh, it seems to have strolled in here. <laughs> well, we then eventually confessed the truth to them. And they said, well, if it's happier with you, it can stay with you. And so Nala is the neighbor's cat. The neighbors still pay the vet's bills. The neighbors <laughs> actually, it's the neighbor's cat, but it lives with us. And it lives with us full time, 24-7, and has lived with us now for several years. And Nala is, and we now let Nala sleep on the bed with us. Does Nala Um, ever visit her original home? Well, you would think she might because her son lives in her original home. But I think... (laughs) They don't get on, actually. No, it's a slightly dysfunctional family. Yeah, they want rid of their young. So she now, Nala lives with us. But really, that's, that's our cat. And, you know, I would really, what I wanted to say to you is cats are as important to us as people, in a way, our pets. So I know what, I've decided what I'm going to say to my cat, and because I've got a poem I want to read to you. Go for it. And that's what I'm going to put. This is, what, this is my little message to my cat. Well, actually, Nala, the neighbor's cat. And this message is a poem. I went to a funeral. I go to a lot of funerals. I've reached the age of funerals. You're still going to christenings and weddings. <laughs> I'm now going to funerals and memorial services. Um, and um, they're quite reassuring at times. I feel I'm still there. I speak. <laughs> I, I, I'm standing, speaking. I'm looking out, thinking, well, I'm still here. That's something. Um, anyway, I went to one the other day where I wasn't speaking. Um, but it was the funeral of a lovely artist called Jan Pinkowski, who did the Meg Morgan Owl books. He was an artist. Oh my Brilliant God, man. I love those books. Yeah. 
They were fantastic. Anyway, he died. And his uh, lifelong partner, David Walser, who's a friend and neighbor of my wife's and mine, who's a ceramicist and artist himself, wrote a poem at the time of his partner's death. And I loved this poem. And I thought of you and all the people that um, I've been thinking about coming to do your podcast, people that I wanted to say thank you to from my book and people like the pets. And this is about the people that we love and how, how lucky we are to know them. It's just a very short poem written by David Walser. Flowers come, they bloom and go. We love them and we miss them so. The same with friends, they come, they grow. And then one day they up and go. We love them and we miss them so. Right there, isn't it? It's just that. It's just the way it goes. The, yeah. the way it goes. Yeah. All oh. that lives must die. I have to say, I was deeply anti-cat, but my husband was very pro-cat. And during lockdown, we got two cats. One hates me as a misogynist. Only likes my husband and my sons. The other one, the girl one, we get on all right. But when they, one of them went missing, even the one that hates me. I lose my act. I lose my shit. I mean, honestly, I love them so much, and I don't realise how much I love them. And I was totally anti them being in the house. Um, but yeah, as soon as I can't find one of them, or one of them's gone off wandering for more than twenty-four hours, I'm like in floods of tears. Like, where's the cat? Oh my god, the cat needs to come back. Um, so yeah, they do. They, I don't know what. Also, they're sort of slightly disdainful. I think cats are conservative. I have to say, naturally, as a species, they're a conservative party voting species. Well, that's as doubt. it should be. Yes, because <laughs> there are more are. cats than there have ever been in this country. Though this is encouraging. <laughs> I didn't realise we we're going to end on this upbeat note. How marvellous! That's very good. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.